1: Back in
2: 2009, I went to the doctor to get some blood drawn. I was pregnant, not showing yet, but it was time to get my genetic testing done. I looked away when the lab tech stuck me with the needle because blood makes me queasy. The tech started filling vials, one after another after another. I looked up, saw the vials standing neatly in their holder full of my blood there were like nine of them at least there are so many I said to the tech it's because you're Ashkenazi she said and then I passed out next thing I know there's a straw in my mouth and I'm sipping orange juice Now, growing up, it was drilled into me that being an Ashkenazi Jew, a Jew descended from Eastern Europe, put you at risk for a lot of things, most of them some version of anti-Semitism. But what I didn't know was being Ashkenazi also puts you at risk for inheriting and passing down all sorts of genetic mutations, genes that can lead to disease, Goucher disease, Canavan disease, Tay-Sachs, cystic fibrosis, Bloom syndrome, a couple of these I'd never even heard of. Suddenly, there was a whole list of things to worry about. After about a week of waiting, my tests all came back negative, which means good. But not everyone is so lucky. The tests can reveal that you're a carrier for a scary disease that your kid may or or may not get. The results can be super complicated, a lot more than they used to be. But testing for disease in large swaths of people like this, it's called population-wide carrier testing, traces back to one genetic testing breakthrough about 40 years ago. It's an absolutely fascinating story. I'm, I'm just waiting for Steven Spielberg to make it into a movie. This is Bonnie Rockman. She's a journalist, and she's been covering parenthood and health for almost a decade. Her new book is all about how parents are handling our sometimes empowering, sometimes unnerving, access to genetic information.
3: It's called The Gene Machine, how genetic technologies are changing the way we have kids and the kids we have.
2: This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Hillary Frank, and today, Bonnie Rockman will walk us through the Spielbergian story of how and why people like you and me get so much genetic testing that we pass out whether that testing is good or bad, and Bonnie will talk about what your options are when you find out that you're a carrier, and how to handle it when a genetic diagnosis catches you by surprise. Bonnie is a mom of three, and she first entered the confusing world of genetics, like a lot of us do, when she was pregnant with her first child 14 years ago. Like me, Bonnie's Ashkenazi. Unlike me, though, she did some googling before she went to the doctor, and she knew that being Ashkenazi put her at risk.
3: I went to my uh, to my OBGYN. I was newly pregnant, and I said, "Okay, what sort of carrier screening do I need?" He said, "Oh, you just
2: need um, screening for Tay Sachs disease. Tay Sachs is a fatal genetic disease that's commonly associated with the Jewish community, and it's screened for regularly." Bonnie had anticipated being screened for Tay-Sachs, but she was sort of stunned that her doctor did not mention any of the other diseases that she had read about.
3: And he just kind of blew me off, and I um, I ended up finding a genetic counselor, an independent genetic counselor who was attached to um, to a hospital where I wasn't receiving prenatal care, and she just kind of rolled her eyes and laughed at the same time when I told her the story of how my doctor had been so dismissive. So there's just um, th- that was my c- kind of my first encounter with realizing that um, everyone, depending on where you live in the country, you're not getting the same sort of information. Um, I would not have gotten access to the same um, to the same testing unless I pushed it as
2: I did Bonnie says the difference in our experience that she had to actively seek out full testing while for me it was automatic is due to geography there are disparities in treatment for people living in different parts of the country she lived in North Carolina where there weren't a ton of Jews I was in Philadelphia where there are more of us Even among OBGYNs, there can be vast differences in genetic literacy and understanding. Bonnie's experience also happened about seven years before mine. When Bonnie started doing research for her book, she quickly learned why doctors everywhere knew to test for Tay-Sachs, even if they rarely saw Ashkenazi patients. It's because the history of genetic testing actually starts with Tay-Sachs. More than 40 years
3: ago, um, there was a doctor, Dr. Mike Kback. He was working at Johns Hopkins University at the time. And he was asked to see a colleague's infant son who wasn't meeting his developmental milestones. And he had the sad task of informing his
2: friend that his baby had Tay-Sachs disease. At the time, this couple was expecting their second child And since they now knew that their first child had Tay-Sachs, the parents realized that they must both be carriers, meaning there was a 25% chance their unborn child would have Tay-Sachs too, which like a quarter chance. It's pretty high. So
3: it was this incredible, dramatic story where the parents decided that kind of, out of self preservation, sort of uh, emotional self preservation, that they could not bear to see their baby once their their baby would be born until they knew for sure that it didn't have Tay Sachs, and if it did have Tay Sachs, they had a plan to send the baby to foster care or to an institution, and they never they planned to
2: never to never lay eyes on their child. Which I just gotta say, like that yeah. just sounds heart-wrenching.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the kind of thing like you feel on one hand, it's hard not to judge. On the other hand, I can imagine what that would be like. And to just think that both of your children have this death sentence hanging over them. So I think that they just were were coping in the best way that they they knew how.
2: This might sound extreme, but Tay-Sachs is one of the cruelest diseases you can be born with.
3: There is still no cure for it, and it's this very slow, agonizing process of deterioration where children um, lose their sight, they have seizures, they deteriorate until, um, until they die. And I think what's What's particularly tragic about it is that the babies seem completely normal when they're born, and it's really only discovered around six months or so when the babies are starting, they should be hitting milestones like sitting up or rolling over, and they're not hitting them. And then um, the parents will take them to their doctor, and, and it'll be diagnosed then.
2: doctor Kayback saw this couple suffering and thought, there's got to be a way to help people like this.
3: I mean he was he was on the clock he had to figure out how to diagnose this baby once the
2: baby was born could they have gotten the baby tested like uh Oh, prenatally? Yeah, prenatally. Yeah,
3: yeah, they could have. Yeah, they could have. I'm glad you brought that up. So yes, they could have had an amniocentesis where you um, stick a needle into um, into the uterus and draw out some fluid and analyze that for the presence or absence of Tay-Sachs disease. But the mom was so emotionally fragile at the time that Dr. back thought that she the way he put it was she might jump off a building if the if the test were positive. And she was also later in her pregnancy at the time. So, um, you know, all of them together, they just decided to continue the pregnancy and try and test the baby at birth. Now, that had never been done because, like I said, you know, most babies aren't tested for Tay-Sachs at birth. You just wait until symptoms start
2: to appear. And then that is what leads you to bring a child to the doctor. So Dr. Kabak had his charge to figure out a test to diagnose this baby at birth. And he called in some backup.
3: All these people who were um, who were working on Tay Sachs research, and one of the um, one of the scientists had actually um, identified the enzyme that indicates the presence or absence of Tay Sachs. So he collected the baby's cord blood at birth. The parents averted their eyes so they wouldn't actually see the baby being born, you know, see gender, just kind
2: of you know have any connection with this baby whatsoever. Dr. Kebek took some of the baby's blood back to his lab for testing.
3: Then he um, he took the, the other portion of cord blood, um, took it to the airport, and um, gave it to a flight attendant who was instructed to hand it to what he called a handsome doctor um, at the gate in San Diego. Of course, this was many years before there. We had airline security, so people could just walk right up to the gate
2: and, you know. This does sound like an action movie.
3: Yeah, it doesn't exactly you can totally see it. People rushing through the air, through the airport and this child's this child's future is hanging in the balance. And these three researchers are, you know, working through the night. They like they cannot go to bed. You know, they just know that they need to keep running this test to see whether this um, this enzyme is present and whether this baby's going to stay
2: with her parents. Yes, yes, exactly. Dr. Kebeck ran his test. And at the same time, so did the doctor in California. They called each other up and the baby got a clean bill of health. And so it was in the
3: you know very early hours of the morning and the mother and the dad went to go see their baby for the first time. As you can imagine, lots and lots of tears. Um, Dr. back went home, took a shower, and he said, as he's in the shower, he's thinking, we can't continue to allow this to happen. There has to be some way to detect the presence
2: of Tay-Sachs ahead of time. Like way ahead in the parents themselves before they even have children. So he adapted the test that he and his colleagues had used and created one of the first carrier screenings, the same test that I was given and Bonnie was given and lots of other Jewish people have been given to determine if we were carriers for Tay-Sachs. All right, now here's where a quick high school biology refresher would help.
3: So everyone has two copies of genes. You get a copy from your mom and a copy from your dad.
2: And remember, there are two basic types of genetic diseases, dominant and recessive. For dominant diseases, you only need to inherit one copy of the gene, like from one parent, to actually get that disease. But for recessive diseases like Tay-Sachs, you need to inherit the Tay-Sachs mutation from both of your parents. But let's say you've only inherited one affected gene from your mom and the other gene from your dad is normal. You're considered a carrier and so you
3: are not affected, but then you can pass your affected gene to your child and say your husband can pass his affected gene to the child and
2: then you have a child who's affected. Tay-Sachs is what's called an autosomal recessive disease. And is Tay-Sachs limited to Ashkenazi Jews, or are there other ethnicities that carry Tay-Sachs? Yeah, you
3: know, that. that the interesting thing about um, genetic disease that runs in populations is it's more common the prevalence is higher in certain populations, but anyone can get it um, now. In fact, most cases of Tay-Sachs are no longer occurring within the Jewish community because the Jews have gotten the message about screening for Tay-Sachs. Hmm. In fact, um, before I got married to my husband, I knew that he had been screened at a campus, Hillel, a Jewish student organization um, for for Tay-Sachs. Like that was, you know, there was a program that was put on at his
2: campus. At his college. So, does everybody get screened now, or is it just if you're in one of these populations that where it's more prevalent? No. Okay. So,
3: no. There are only two diseases that all women across the board are supposed to get screened for, according to professional guidelines, and those diseases are cystic fibrosis and spinal muscular atrophy, and then on. And, you know, case-by-case basis, depending on your ethnicity, um, doctors will recommend other tests that should be added onto that.
2: But, Bonnie says, some doctors are moving toward a more broad form of testing.
3: What's called expanded carrier screening. So expanded carrier screening is testing all people, regardless of their ethnicity, for all the same diseases. And the reason that that is important it's because, you know, America is a melting pot. So many people don't really know where they came from or they think they do. Like also when you think about people doing um, 23andMe and they do, or Ancestry.com, and they do DNA tests to try and figure out where in the world they're from, they're often finding that they have, who knew that they were part Jewish or they were part Irish or they have Romanian blood. So um, all of that is coalescing to... Um, to give rise to laboratories and companies that are, now, um, that are now promoting this expanded carrier screening.
2: Carrier screenings, though, are just one step in a long line of complicated tests and decisions that parents are forced to confront. When we come back, your options for having kids when you know that you're at risk for passing down something scary. Plus, I designed the perfect baby. Don't go away. Can you say advertisements?
0: Advertisements. <laughs> Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waverhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trin Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2, Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair,
1: every style, every home. Start your electric journey right here, right now with a Volvo XC90 Recharge, our plug-in hybrid SUV with extended range. For more everyday electric journeys on a single charge with a hybrid option for longer adventures, Contact your local retailer to book a test drive or design your own vehicle at volvocars.com US. The Volvo XC90 Recharge Plug-In Hybrid, the electric car with a backup plan.
0: <laughs>
2: We're back with journalist and author Bonnie Rockman. The kind of tests that Bonnie was describing before the break, carrier screenings, can help people know what they might be at risk to pass down to future children, but then you've still got some hard choices to make. Now, I want you to just imagine this for a second. You meet the love of your life, and you can't wait to start a family. Then you both get some genetic testing done, or maybe you have an idea of your genetics because you have a parent who suffers from a genetic disease, but you both find out that you're carriers for something. Your future kids are at risk. This is a really difficult and confusing situation to be in. And as there's more testing being done, it's becoming more and more common. But Bonnie says there are some options.
3: So the most technologically involved is to do something called preimplantation genetic diagnosis or PGD. And so what that would involve is going through IVF in vitro fertilization, even though you are theoretically um, not having fertility problems, so that you um, are able to then create embryos. So let's say you are able to, um, to create 10 embryos. And then an embryologist, someone who takes a look at embryos for a living, will analyze these embryos, again, for the presence or absence of whatever particular genetic disease or genetic mutation you're looking for. So they're not looking for every possible thing that could be wrong with this embryo, but they're looking for the one thing that you say, hey, we're concerned about tay because we're each carriers. So let's say out of 10, let's say six of them have tay Um Set those aside, toss them, discard them, um, although that in itself is very controversial. And then you would take the f- other four that don't have Tay-Sachs, and then you would choose from among those four which ones you would implant. That sounds expensive. Is that? Uh, yes. <laughs> is, is it? <laughs> it is. It is. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the cost of, of in vitro fertilization varies, but in general, it's about Twenty thousand a cycle, give or take, depending on where you live in the country, and then typically adding on this extra, um, this extra service, tax on about six thousand dollars.
2: Bonnie says that for many couples who know their carriers for diseases like Tay Sachs, cystic fibrosis, or other conditions that are clearly linked to a genetic mutation, this option can feel like an amazing gift, and the cost is one that they may be willing to pay to have a child free of the disease. Some health insurance carriers cover PGD and IVF. Insurance also often helps with the cost of initial carrier screenings. But some genetic mutations are not actually guaranteed to make you sick, which can make the decision to use expensive technologies even more complicated. Take, for example, the BRCA mutation. BRCA stands
3: for breast cancer, and having a BRCA mutation heightens your risk of developing breast cancer. You know, there's a lot of talk about the BRCA gene, the BRCA gene. Well, everyone has the BRCA gene, actually. It's a mutation in that gene that causes a problem. The BRCA gene is actually a tumor suppressor gene. So, like, that's a good gene. You want that gene working its magic and suppressing tumors. But when there is a mutation within that gene, that's what can give rise to breast cancer and so you can imagine a family where let's say your mom had the mutation and she died young of cancer and your aunt died of cancer and your grandma died of breast cancer and this is kind of just um you know, cutting this swath of pain and loss through your family, then if you know you have the mutation before you have children and um, a BRCA mutation is one of these mutations where you only need one copy of the mutated gene to actually have the mutation. So one, you can have
2: just one parent who has it.
3: Yeah, 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 exactly. You don't need two parents who um, who pass it along. And if you have a way to avoid passing on this genetic mutation that has wreaked havoc in your family, some people decide that it's a no-brainer. They're absolutely going to do that. But Some people feel like that's playing God. And often people within the same family who have that mutation, sisters or cousins, will you know feel judged because one person is using the technology to uh, to have kids who don't have the mutation and another person is not using the technology and then she has children who could or could not have inherited that mutation she doesn't know because and this is getting into something else but she doesn't know because kind of the guidelines the professional guidelines are that we don't test children for adult onset conditions so you really wouldn't know if your kid has inherited that mutation until um, she or he would uh, would turn 18. Um, and that's another little aside that I think is important is a, a boy can inherit and does inherit a BRCA mutation all the time. It's just that the risk of breast cancer
2: is higher in girls. And can, if that, if that guy becomes a dad, can he then pass it on to his Absolutely. female daughter? Absolutely.
3: Yes, he has the same 50% chance mm-hmm. of passing that on as a woman would. So it's also important for men to know about their family history or to get tested.
2: Now, if you cannot afford or are ethically against uh, pursuing embryo selection technology, what are your other options?
3: Well, you could adopt. Um, and that's what a lot of people do. Or you could get pregnant the old-fashioned way.
2: You could, um, and then just take your chances.
3: Yeah. Well, no, you could, could have an amniocentesis mm. or a CVS, a chorionic villa sampling earlier in pregnancy um, to find out whether your, your, you know, whether your baby has inherited this mutation. And if the answer is yes, and you find this you know, whatever the particular mutation is so um, disturbing that you don't want to continue the pregnancy, you could opt to terminate.
2: And talk to me about that. Um, What what are the ethics around this and what, what conditions are people choosing to abort for?
3: Well, I think that everyone, when you say what are people choosing to abort for, Everyone is different there. I tell the story in the book of um, of a woman who actually wrote about her decision to abort her baby who had cystic fibrosis and she got as you probably won't be surprised to hear an incredible amount of online castigation um, but she felt that the life of a person with um, cystic fibrosis and this particular mutation that she had that the, the baby had was um, she said considered a very severe one. She felt like her baby would have, wouldn't have a good quality of life. So in this particular situation the um the mother felt like she was although it was it was heart-wrenching she felt like she was making perhaps you know her first and last um, ultimate, you know, act of love toward this child. You can't really make a blanket statement about, oh, everyone who has, who finds out ahead of time that they're having a Down syndrome pregnancy is going to abort because that is actually, I think, something that was believed true for a while um, and has been shown to be absolutely not true. So with now that with these blood tests that are able to, you um, predict whether you have a baby with Down syndrome um, already in the first trimester, there was a lot of fear and a lot of concern on the part of parents who have children with Down syndrome and of people on the part of people who love people with Down syndrome that everyone would sort of—it would be this mad dash to abortion because people would—you'd you'd be finding out so early that, like, the pregnancy wouldn't really seem real. You're not even showing yet. It's kind of like, oh, okay, just uh, let's just press the restart button. You know, we'll just reset everything and start from scratch. But I find that attitude
2: to be way off base. Bonnie says early testing can also give families time to do research, find resources, and plan ahead. She's also found that how people understand disability, whether they know someone with a disability or have a family with a disabled child in the community, is a better indication of how they might react to a diagnosis than how early they test. You know, I think a big fear that people have with embryo selection technology is that people could create, quote, designer babies. Has that actually been done? No.
3: (laughs) No. Could that be done? Yes. We are getting to that
2: stage where,
3: yes, it could be done. Um,
2: Like, what would that even mean? What, What are you talking about when you say that?
3: Yes, yes, exactly. What would that mean? Well, so for example, if you think about okay, what I, I don't know. What what do you think? What would be the what would be the trait that you would most want to if you know if you're building a baby here, what would be the most important thing to you for the baby to have?
2: Me, um, I don't think you can, I don't think there's a gene for this, but uh, funny. <laughs> I want them to be funny.
3: Yeah, okay, so right. What is the what is the gene for a good sense of humor? So that's a great one. Um, but I think a lot of people would say, oh, I want my child to be smart. Yeah. Um, but there's no, we, we are not aware of, there's no Einstein gene out there. Um, there are so many different things that factor into intelligence. Um, I think there's this misperception within society that genes are destiny, but genes in some cases are destiny. With Tay-Sachs, for example, you have this genetic mutation, you are going to die a horrible death of Tay-Sachs. But in so many cases, with intelligence, with athleticism, with sense of humor, it is a function of genes and environment plays a huge role. So for example, If you, Hillary, are funny and your partner is super funny, well, then your child is probably going to be funny. (laughs) There
2: we go. We've got, then we've got our designer funny baby. Exactly. Exactly. Bonnie says we're still pretty far away from designing hilarious Einstein babies, but she also points out that not everyone is looking for a designer baby with those specific traits.
3: So, if, you know, you are very proud of being deaf and you, this is a part of your culture, well, you, it stands to reason that you then might want to have a child who's deaf because you, being deaf and loving being deaf, don't think that being deaf is a disability instead of trying to, um, To eliminate a disability, you try to inculcate a disability. So it's not something that's sanctioned by the medical community because of the Hippocratic Oath So said the first do no harm. And I mean... There are people who would feel, you know, who who do feel that that's very paternalistic, that we have this idea in society of kind of what is the right way to be in this world and that the right way to be is to be hearing, to be sighted, to be intelligent.
2: Bonnie says the options for people who know about their risk for passing on genetic diseases will only increase as more people get tested. But for all the really complicated and heart-wrenching decisions for parents that Bonnie writes about in her book, there is at least one place where the genetic testing has eliminated a lot of anxiety for parents.
3: I think the most uh, non-controversial and amazing way that this technology is helping families is by helping diagnose kids who have undiagnosed diseases. So before what would happen is that if you have a child who's not rolling over, who's not speaking, you would go to the doctor and it would be this like very laborious step by step process of starting to test genes one by one that your doctor would say, maybe she has X disease. Let's test her for that. Test negative. OK, maybe Y disease. Test negative. No, negative. Moving on, you just have to test one by one. But now genetic technology is such that you're able to test, you're able to do something called um, exome sequencing or genome sequencing, where you're reading all the genes or all the protein coding genes um, all at once. And you're able to then kind of array this all out, take a look at it and say, okay, where are where does, does this person's genes, where do they differ from what's called a reference genome, like the typical genome? And so in these situations, we are now able to diagnose disease and to end what is known as the diagnostic odyssey among these families. And you're able to potentially figure out what is going on with your child.
2: In a minute, getting a genetic diagnosis that you did not go looking for. Stay with us.
3: Say
0: advertisement. Advertisement.
2: we are back with bonnie rockman author of the gene machine so you know i had a friend um when i was pregnant uh like seven years ago in a prenatal yoga class um and i remember she came in one day just beside herself totally devastated she had gotten some news that she had a prenatal screening um, that showed that the the baby had an increased risk of a fatal disease, and I, I can't remember what it was, but I remember she just for weeks uh, felt like she couldn't leave the house. Um, mm-hmm. It really affected her. And you know, when you're pregnant, they always tell you don't stress because that can yeah. affect the baby. And yeah. then uh, a few weeks later, she got the uh, she, she got further results that basically said, "Don't worry, everything's fine." Um, And I just wonder, in your reporting, um, how common does this kind of experience seem to be where where you get a positive result and then a negative result? And what are we supposed to do with that?
3: I, I think it is so common. It is so common, and it is only going to become more common as these tests become more pervasive, more affordable, and more women find out about them and take advantage of them.
2: It's not just becoming more common, it's getting more confusing. And Bonnie knows firsthand just how confusing it can be.
3: I was pregnant with my third. Child and um, during my um, my second trimester ultrasound, there was a uh, th- there was a cyst that was found on her brain, which sounded uh, still saying it out loud sounds absolutely terrifying. And I was told, oh, it could be nothing, or it could be an indication of Trisomy 18, where you have three copies of the 18th chromosome, and it's a very serious chromosomal condition, and is often fatal
2: soon after birth, if not during pregnancy. Bonnie was freaking out. It could be something or it could be nothing was not exactly a reassuring message for an expectant mom. The only way Bonnie could get more information before her child was born was to do an amniocentesis, a procedure which has a slight risk for causing miscarriage.
3: I think if I would have been a more chill person, I would have said, oh, okay, or let's hope for the best, or I'm sure everything's fine. But I, was, I walked right across the street into the uh, maternal fetal medicine specialist office and had that amnio right then and there. And, um, you
2: know, she, thank God, did not have trisomy 18. Bonnie's daughter actually just turned 10 and is totally healthy. But back at the time of the test... Bonnie's curiosity got the best of her. She requested a copy of her daughter's lab report.
3: When I got the lab report, it said that she had what is called inversion nine. So her ninth chromosome is flipped. So it's like the top is on the bottom and the bottom's on the top. And everything is there, which is really reassuring because when you are missing genetic information, that can be concerning. But it's just like doing a handstand. And you know, I was really worried about that. I did some research. Um, I was told and reassured by genetic counselors and what I found out online that it's one of the most common um, genetic blips. And it's very likely that either I or my husband have it as well and passed it on to her. But so, I mean, for me, it really upped my anxiety. And Then I actually found out she had something else, and I wasn't looking for that at all. So that's a a phenomenon called incidental or uh, unexpected findings. And so that is happening to so many people and will continue. So it's not only the, oh, you know, are you getting information, and then you actually are relieved, which is hopefully what's going to happen, but you're also finding out
2: other information that you didn't even ask for. Bonnie says she sometimes looks at her daughter and wonders... Is this tantrum she's throwing because she's a child or because she has a flipped ninth chromosome? Knowing this stuff can make for unnecessary anxiety. But Bonnie says it could come in handy one day.
3: You know, if there should ever be information that it, it does correlate with some sort of, you know, some sort of disease, then at least I'll know about it. So I can, I can, you know, as her mom, right? our, our goal is to have, take care of our kids. So at least I would be able to, do whatever needs to be done.
2: But not everyone feels happy to get surprise glimpses into their child's genome. Bonnie told me about one family with a little boy named Daniel who failed his newborn hearing test.
3: And the parents were really surprised. There's no um, hearing loss that runs in their family. And they took him to a battery of doctors to follow up. And um, last on the list was genetics because they thought, we don't have any genetic conditions in our family. So it's totally not that. But our doctor said, take him to the geneticist. So we're just going to listen. So they took him. They had genetic testing and then what happened is the results did not reveal any reason for his for the baby's hearing loss but the results did reveal that he was missing several genes and a further testing revealed that the mom had passed on this genetic deletion to her son. So she was missing these genes also. And these missing genes were correlated with potential increased risk of cancer. But there is absolutely nothing to do to, um, you know, to mitigate this risk.
2: Out of nowhere, this mom not only had to worry about her own risk of cancer, she had to worry about her son, who after all was just an infant, decades away from his hypothetical risk. Turn to page 141 and you quote from this mom's letter, uh, the letter that she wrote to her doctor.
3: Okay. As Daniel's second birthday approaches, we see before us a vibrant and much beloved little boy who is thriving by all other accounts. The uncertain Pandora's box that you have unwittingly opened up for us, of course, can never be closed, and we will always likely live with some amount of heightened anxiety about what could be in his future now.
2: Yeah, so that Pandora's box feeling of that you you could open up this thing and and like, you and, you think you're going to get the answer that you're looking for and instead you get all this like darkness, you know, of uh, an uncertain future. How are we supposed to decide whether it's a good idea or not to get testing done when the results can be so complicated?
3: That's the the million-dollar question. Um, in, In this case, the the mom really regrets that they did the testing. Um, I think that often what happens is if your child, this is what I observed through my reporting and what uh, research studies have borne out as well, and kind of anecdotally doctors have experienced, that if parents have a child who is already sick, then they want to know lots and lots of information. And they don't care if it may be unclear. They want, they're like, it's this, like, you know, kind of spelunking expedition. They're looking for every possible thing that could be of important, of medical importance, you know, to and about their kid. And yet, um, in this situation where the mom was angry, her son had some hearing loss, but the hearing loss was so mild that when I visited, the family, He, we were outside playing at his train table and munching on granola bars. And he started making airplane noises and pointed at the sky. And there was a jet, I mean, thousands and thousands of feet in the air that I hadn't even clued into, but he'd heard the plane. And so this mom felt that, you know, really wishes she just never would have. She definitely feels like it was this Pandora's box because every time she looks at him, she feels this, you know, this this twinge of sadness and wonders, Is he going to get sick? How would I know? What's going to happen to him? What lies in his future?
2: Professional guidelines state that doctors should only share genetic information with parents that could pertain to childhood medical conditions, like serious stuff that could affect children in the near future. But parents who want to know more information can always ask for it. Bonnie recommends seeking the help of a genetic counselor in situations like that. There is one more group of people besides doctors and parents who may have a say about how genetic information is disseminated, and that's the kids themselves.
3: If parents know all there is to know um, currently about a child's genetic future, you are violating that child's right to an open future. So your daughter or your son's right to privacy, to saying like, hey, mom, dad, I I didn't actually want to know about that disease that may or may not lurk in my future, I I had no interest in knowing about it. But you know about it, so now I know about it, and that feels really unfair. So on a couple of days ago, I actually spoke with um, eighth-grade biology students, classmates of my son, and it was an amazing discussion. Those kids were so engaged in these topics, and maybe it's because technology is such a part of their life. Like They weren't freaked out about it at all. But when we got really heated when I asked them, um, what they thought of the right to an open future. So the kids pretty much across the board were really vehement that their parents should absolutely not have the right to know everything about them because what if they didn't want to know it and then their parents already know and it just feels like um, that it's taken away their their autonomy. So I think that's really something we're going to increasingly have to grapple with about what is the right to an open future and how valid is that.
2: For now, Bonnie says, who gets to know what and when is still being discussed by doctors and patient advocacy groups and philosophers and it's likely to keep changing. Is there a world in which you could do it so that like you sign a thing that says only tell me the stuff that I can do something about?
3: Yes. Yes. There is a world. (laughs) There's an online world. Um, So there is a software well, website actually called My46. So like 46 chromosomes. So My46. And it's really used um, mostly on a research basis now. And it's specifically set up for this. So if you have your genome sequenced, your genome read and decoded, all that Data. All those results can be dumped into this um, this online um, forum, and then you can click. You're specifically asked, "What do you want to know? Do you want to know about cancer? Do you want to know about gastrointestinal? Do you want to know about dementia? Um, do you not want to know childhood onset, adult onset? What, you know, you can sort of pick and choose what you want to know and when you want to know it. And even if you say, "No, no, 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 I don't want to know anything," all that information is saved so that As you change your mind, if you change your mind, which you probably will, because, for example, you may not want to know about anything cancer-related now, but then if your mom is diagnosed with breast cancer, all of a sudden you may be really interested to know about breast cancer in your family and whether you have inherited a genetic mutation or your child has inherited a genetic mutation.
2: Bonnie says that my 46 is still in the really early stages of use. But she anticipates that as more people access their genetic information, more and more resources like it will spring up. Bonnie, you knew to seek out carrier testing for the potential that you were carrying um, genes for common Ashkenazi Jewish diseases. But you, you knew to ask that. You wouldn't have gotten all the testing if you, unless you knew to seek that out. What should people be asking their healthcare providers if they want to have kids?
3: they should be asking them what their opinions are about expanded carrier screening. So that is really, I think that's really the direction in which testing is going. I also feel so few women do what's called preconceptual counseling or a preconception visit that um, it's 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 next to impossible to imagine that everyone would be tested um, before they get pregnant. But that's really that's really the ideal because then you have all this information and then you can make these um, these empowered choices about how are you going to get pregnant? Are you going to use genetic technology? Should you consider using genetic technology? Should you consider adopting? Should you just take your chances? Or do you are you not a carrier of any you know recessive diseases and you can um you know have a baby and you know cross your fingers and hope for the best just like everyone does
2: Bonnie after having done all of this research what do you think is the availability of this information a good thing or a bad thing
3: I have given this a ton of thought and I ultimately think it's a good thing um so I just I think that 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 although all this information can absolutely be Um, overwhelming. And though although it absolutely can cause a lot of anxiety, I feel like information is always empowering. And even if it's not completely clear, I feel like knowing about it and being able to understand more about yourself and about who you came from and future generations is always beneficial.
2: Bonnie Rockman's fascinating book is The Gene Machine. We've got a link to it on our website, LongestShortestTime.com. We will also link to some of Bonnie's favorite resources for sifting through the world of genetic testing. While you're there, we want to hear from you. Have you used genetic technology to make a family? Maybe you passed out from the genetic testing you had in pregnancy. Please tell me I'm not alone. Let us know in the comments for this episode. That's episode 132. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Abigail Keel and Kristen Clark. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our engineer at KUOW was Timothy Meinig. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by Hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Layton Brown. We get editorial support from Amory Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Rekha Murthy. Special thanks this week to Elaine White and Pacific Northwest Fertility. Next week on The Longest Shortest Time, a woman looks in a thrift store window and sees a stuffed animal.
3: Except that it was the most amazing stuffed animal you've ever seen because it was like, you know when you're a kid and you hear those stories about how your toys wake up at midnight
2: and do things while you're asleep? This, When I was looking in the window, it was just like this little lamb was alive. The story of how a little stuffed lamb leads one woman to make a big promise to herself. You don't want to miss this, you guys. I've been emailing with this lady for four years and her story is super duper special. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you like. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories and for your weird parenting wins, you know, for our super awesome book that you can be a part of. Go to LongestShortestTime.com and submit your story.